There's Bible verse I think about sometimes. Many times. It goes. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who shall I send? And I will go for us. Welcome back. Here we are, kids. This is the final installment on the story of Jonah. And I hate to tell you this, but you are not going to like how this concludes. If you're a big closure person and need a bow on it, you ain't going to get it. Now that I've gone through this whole story again, I'm starting to realize why maybe this last chapter was left out because it's, it's, a, it's a weird one. All right, so we got a ridiculous prophet that would rather die than listen to his God. He runs. That doesn't work. He hits bottom, touches death, wakes him up. Then he obeys, sort of. Confronts a tough country. He preaches, sort of. A sermon, and the country loves it and radically changes their mind. And how does Jonah feel about this? Remember the last part of chapter 3? God sees the heart change of the people of Nineveh, and he turns off the justice faucet. He pulls back. He changes his mind. He forgave them. So, great news, guys, right? Jonah should be pumped, I'd imagine. We did it. I mean, I'd imagine so. No reason to think otherwise, but since we're here, we might as well read how he responds, just in case. So, let's get into it. Sure, it's fine. Verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. End quote. Dang it, Jonah. We're back to this. This guy's got a temper on him, man. He does not like God's plan for this world, or himself, or his enemies, or his friends, probably, if he had any. All right, wait, hold on. He's praying again. Here we go. Verse 2. Praying again. That's good news, right? He, he did finally realize how to pray through pain and hardship in chapter 2. So maybe he keeps it going. Let's, let's take a look at the prayer. And, oh, jeez. Swing and a miss. Jonah is livid. Come on, man. This might be a new chapter, a new category of prayer for you, but I doubt it. It's not really preached about in kids groups where this Jonah and the whale story is typically isolated. You know, the guy with the acoustic guitar who won't stop smiling or speaking only in churched up jargon buzzwords. Blech. This prayer seems to me to be through some gritted teeth. I mean, popping a crown out kind of gritted, grinding teeth. I've prayed like this before. I'm sure you have as well. If you've lived in this world for a little bit, it's all over the Psalms. So I don't feel as bad after reading through those a number of times. It's good therapy to see other people happen to them as well. Jonah isn't surprised at the results of where he is. He's predicted this response from God from the beginning. It's the whole reason for the running. And it finally came to pass, and he wants to let God know how he feels about it. And he says, quote, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still in my country and my home? This is why I ran to Tarshish, because I knew that you are a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And when sinners turn to you, you revoke the sentence of disaster against them. Now just take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. 
end quote. <laughs> what a prayer, man. This guy has got some sand, huh? Some guts, some chutzpah, as my Jewish brothers might say. That dog will hunt. I mean, he's basically screaming at God, right? He's saying, I knew it. I knew this the whole time. I knew you were going to do this. You always do this. I told you. I told you how to play it. Now go help your precious little Ninevite children that you love so much suddenly, I guess. But when you get a minute, God, from your crocodile tears for these murderers, just kill me, please, because I'm officially sick of it. Maybe I'm putting a few too many words in his mouth, but that's the venom I feel in his voice. Like as he was speaking in present times, he is so mad. It's a type of mad when you see a friend going through it and you're calm for some reason, and it just comes across kind of really funny, you know? Maybe that's my sense of humor, but it is pretty funny. All right, let's refocus. There's there's some super Jewish buzzwords in this prayer. If you've been studying scripture, I'm starting to think that maybe Jonah was a really good Hebrew student after this study. When you listen to the dozens of Psalms he quotes off the top of his head and the Torah lines he references, he knows his stuff. He just doesn't like how God sees things, I'm guessing. We don't either many times. We like to think we have the knowledge of good and bad. Thanks, Eve. As I've said in previous episodes about this gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, these words would jump off the page to a good Jewish student. It is said so many times in the Hebrew scriptures, like Exodus, namely chapter 34, verse 6, is a big one, kind of jumps where God is describing himself. It's the Israelites in the desert, and God is showing them the Ten Commandments, pretty big story. First one's pretty important, don't have any other gods before me, got it. Next was don't have any false idols. I'm summing this up too fast, but Moses, or Moshe, as they say in Hebrew, which I like better, he's up on the mountain talking to God face-to-face, which is insane, by the way. And the people are down there, yada, 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 40 days go by. They're talking amongst themselves, and Aaron, who was the mouthpiece and priest for the people, because Moshe was begging God to not have to talk. He might have had a speech impediment, maybe. That's a different topic. All right, I'm all over the place right now. So in their brilliant logic, they decide that Moses is probably dead up on the mountain with the fire, and we need to move on. So they, they make a golden calf, great call, and they start doing some bizarre sexual rituals. It's a mess. Turns out that wasn't the brightest of idea in Yahweh's furious. Moshe intercedes, opposite of Jonah, and reminds God of his nature. God relents and doesn't kill everyone and decides to renew the covenant with the people. Moshe asks to see God. God says he can't show him his face or Moses will be dead, but decides to pass in front of him with his glory. He gives Moses, a new set of tablets with the Ten Commandments on them again, because I forgot to tell you this. When he came down the first time and saw how the Israelites were behaving, he smashed the Ten Commandments on the ground in anger. Moses did. All right, so bring the ship in on this one, Tyler. What the hell are you talking about? So what I'm saying is when Yahweh passes in front of Moses, he tells him why he didn't kill everyone because he is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So in other words, the existence of the entire Jewish people and not being destroyed multiple times is based off of this position by God. Jonah chooses to take this and hurl it back in his face. I knew it. I knew you were going to do this. It is so annoying. You've been like this, God, the whole time I've known you. You always forgive people that don't deserve it. And this time you cross the line with me. 
Jonah has lost it. He is quite uh, fervent, ardent, zealous, vehement on this mission. Uh, Sometimes I like to think of the gifts that are given to us as people, individuals. I have a gift of words, I guess, and how I've used them. I've used them for tov and raw, good and bad. If I meet someone today that I knew in high school or college, many times I will just start with an apology for how I probably used to speak to them. I used my skill of speaking for evil more times than I want to admit. Maybe you've done this with your skills, but don't give me the, oh, I'm not really good at anything. Everybody's good at something. Okay. So don't give me the woe is me mentality. You have a strength or a resilience or an intelligence, an ability to make art or music, public speaking, a loving, merciful soul, beauty, compassion, servant heart, passion. That's Jonah. Jonah is passionate, if I want to be kind. If my wife and I say this to each other, we are both very passionate. And passion can swing both ways, as we are seeing. Maybe you've been in a relationship with a passionate person. You've seen them use it for good and for bad. Tov and raw. You can use this skill or any skill you have for good or bad. It is a tool. Your personality is a tool. Don't ever anyone say, oh, that's just how I am. Sorry, I'm, I'm a little bit of a handful. Nope. Harness the ability you have been given and use it for good. Make it better for all in your life. You have a temper. You fly off the handle sometimes. Good. Use it for good. Get mad about something useful and utilize that fire in you. Like, like Cain. As in Cain's case from Genesis 4. Sin is always crouching at the door, Cain. You are so close. Just control your emotions or they will control you. That's a whole other podcast. Again, it's a tool just like your iPhone. Your phone is an, an evil device controlling your serotonin levels. Get over yourself with that. It's a tool. Hell, I'm using it right now to get this stupid podcast out, which I hope is for good. But the tool I'm using is benign. But we can use it to look up lustful images or we can pray for someone across the globe with it. I mean, it can, it can move mountains or, or we can get it twisted like anything else. That's a thought on Jonah here. His fiery personality is working against him, but it is his gift. And God is trying to get him to calm down and see it and use it for his plan. You know, I played baseball at a pretty high level for you know a number of years. And I remember a few players that seemed pretty rough around the edges or personality-wise, temperament, lack of drive, but they had it. They had it, man. They had the gift. Many times, some good coaches saw it, but some players didn't, and it, it frustrated us. Why were the coaches being so patient with this guy? He's a mess. Other players are thinking, you know what? I show up to early work. I'm respectful to the staff. I run out every ground ball. I sprint to my position. I get no love. Why are they babying this guy? You want to know why? It's because they see it. They see the potential. If this player could just get out of his own way, he would be great and get to the big leagues and get some butts in the seats to watch. I feel that is what's happening next in this story. Maybe that's a bad analogy, but I can see that with Jonah. God loves Jonah. He's so patient with him in chapter four. He's just wanting him to use his gifts for good. Maybe you have a child like this. You aren't supposed to say this out loud, but maybe you favor one child and your wife or your husband favors another. You're more lenient with this child than you should be. They don't deserve it. 
but you see it. You see how they could shine. They just need some loving. Stop yelling at them, spouse. And yet we have the same problem with the other child's personality with whom your spouse might click with. That kind of hurts, but you know I'm right. It's, it's not supposed to be talked about, but you know I'm right. So that's how I see God act from here on out with Jonah and his temperament in chapter four. Is, is Jonah acting ridiculous? Absolutely. But look through the lens of a loving parent being patient with a toddler or a tween or a teen. That's how God sees us sometimes. We have so much potential, man, but we keep stubbing our toe. We keep screwing up and ruining a chance at this amazing run at life. At our relationships with other human beings, God does the same with Jonah. He tries so hard to get him back on the path. He tries three times. All right, so here we go. Back to the book. Verse four, God answers like a patient father asking a question. Hey, Jonah, hey, do you have a good reason to be angry, Jonah? Jonah's response, silent treatment for God. (laughs) I'm not looking at you. Leave me alone. He goes and makes a little tent, a little shelter. He goes and sits in the shade, which he loves apparently. And he waits, arms crossed, goes to the east of the city and waits to see what's going to happen to the city after all this. Watch the mess play out. I don't know why he makes a tent. I guess he plans to stay there for a while. This might be wishful thinking for maybe fire on high from God. Give me a little Elijah or Elisha action here, Yahweh. He not only is mad at God for his steadfast love, but he might be mad at this you know, small little slight of hand by God that he just did. God kind of tricked him. He tricked Jonah a little bit. I'll, I'll explain. This is kind of weird. But where he tricked him was in verse 3 in the message that Jonah was supposed to preach, his sermon. This is more annoying Bible nerd Hebrew stuff, and it, it makes it so much better. I, I can't remember if I've said this before, but the biblical authors are almost always winking at you. They are so brilliant, so many layers, and here's one. He goes one day into town and says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's all. He leaves out almost everything from God's message. But let's take a look at that last word. What does your translation say in your Bible? Maybe it's NIV, ESV, King James. Do you have anything besides overthrown? Maybe overturned? That's the most I've seen, but it doesn't matter. I just wanted you to look. This might be your new favorite part of the story. Hang with me real quick. That word in Hebrew is hapak, and hapak, like many English words, has more than one meaning. Let's say I told you I crushed something. If I said, I crushed this test, it would have a totally different meaning if I said I crushed your car. Same word, right? So start there with your brain, and let's look at what the author's doing here. A child would never pick up on this. Again, this story is wasted on kids. All right, hapak is to turn something over. A good example of this word is there's another spot in scripture in Hosea, which is a brutal book of the Bible, by the way. These poor prophets, they have such a tough road to hoe, and he's no different. He's forced to let his adulterous wife do her thing and then take her back. Anyways, I'm off the rails again. All right, so hapak is used in here as well, but this is describing Israel as a piece of bread. This bread has not been overturned. It hasn't been hapaked of your, you know, you ruined that first pancake. You took your eyes off of it, you ruined the steak, you ruined the meal. So now let's elevate that to the thought of a city. There's another example of this in Lamentations with reference to Sodom, and it is 
being hapacked in a moment without a hand to help. Another example of hapac being something bad that has happened, going from good to not so good, a negative turn there. But you can also flip it. It can go the other way as well. So something can be hapacked in the positive. So like the phrase in today's nomenclature of someone turning it around, you know, man, that guy was really struggling, but he turned it around. You can do the same thing with this Hebrew word. An example of it is used in Psalm 30, David's singing to God and talks about how he has turned my morning to dancing. He hapacked my morning and now I am dancing. I am so happy. All right, Tyler, if you say the word hapac one more time, I'm going to smash my car into the pole. All right, moving on. Fair enough. All right, so now watch this. Listen to this. The Bible's so brilliant. This is the trick. When God used that word and told Jonah to use it in his sermon, which meaning of the word of turn, of overturn, which, which meaning do you think is he's intending? And then which meaning do you think Jonah thought he was implying? So here we are. Jonah gives the message. In which way did the Ninevites overturn? Jonah might have been hoping, or maybe that's why he's sitting up there. He thought he was preaching their doom, but it was the opposite. God's message helped in them turn, but turn to good. That's supposed to be funny. That's a, that's a hilarious trick. It's supposed to be a funny double meaning that, that came back to bite Jonah. And yet I don't think Jonah thinks it's funny. Do you mean by that? He doesn't, he doesn't really like to laugh at himself. I'm starting to learn that about this guy. He has tried everything to get out of this the entire time. And God won't let him get away with it. Very annoying. He tried to run. Didn't work. Tried to die in the sea. That didn't work. He tried to mail in a pathetic sermon using a few words as possible. That didn't work. God still used all this for good. Jonah, man, as Malcolm X might say, you've been, you've been had, you've been took, you've been hoodwinked. All right. Enough of that. So Jonah doesn't like the trick. He's fuming. He's sitting and fuming. God checks in on him again here in verse six, another new approach to crack Jonah's hard outer shell. He loves on him here. Quote, so the Lord prepared a leafy plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to spare him from discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant End quote. Dude, Jonah loves this plant, man. <laughs> This is his first time being happy in the whole book. He is jacked up about this plant. So happy for the shade, which is bizarre. All right, turn for the worst. Next move by God, verse seven. But God prepared a worm when morning dawned the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God prepared a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he fainted and he wished to die and said, it is better for me to die than to live, end quote. So imagine that Jonah wants to die again. Shocker. This time it's over shade. <laughs> and actually, for some reason, I'm kind of with Jonah on this one. Not, not to the extent of him wanting to be killed again. I mean, that's a little dramatic, which is kind of the theme of the book, huh? But that was kind of a tough one for me as a reader, just, just a move I didn't like by God. But as I have sat and thought about this and try to read this as a novel and not a textbook, have you ever seen 
someone disciplining a small, cute little toddler or a cute little dog. They're not getting hit or anything, but just a complete disobey. And then they're sitting there with their lip puckered out and you might go, oh, poor baby. You know the discipline's needed. There, there needs to be a correction or you're going to have a horrible, annoying kid and you've seen that kid or a horrible, annoying dog and you've seen that dog. It's still just hard sometimes. I've had to tell my kids sometimes when I take something away or discipline them or, on a, or give them a chore and they tell me I'm the meanest parent ever, I kind of reiterate, I'm trying to turn you into a human being. I have a 10-year-old, so I'll say to her, I have eight years left with you in this house. Then I have to release you to the wilderness. You need to be ready. Iron sharpens iron. All right, back to the book. Verse 9, God asked the same question as before, little twist. God says to Jonah, do you have a reason to be angry about the plant? In other words, hey, Jonah, is the reaction of begging for death again, does that make sense in your brain about the plant that I took away? Here's Jonah's answer. What's Jonah's answer? He says, yeah, I have a very good reason to be angry, angry enough to die. Holy cow, man. This guy's off the rails. Full meltdown, full snap. God calmly answers him, trying to get a hold of him. One last try to get Jonah to see. This is, this is the end of the book, guys, by the way. We're almost done here. I almost feel God's approach here like a father talking calmly to his out-of-control son, maybe a teen or a young man, huffing and puffing, eyes burning red with anger, mouth breathing, sweating. And the calm father comes in, son, son, hey, look at me. God says to him in the last two verses, quote, Jonah, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work. You didn't even make it grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Now, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people. And Jonah, they don't even know the difference between your right and their left hand. And then this is thrown in there to make the book even weirder, as well as many animals. (laughs) Is that crazy? Dude, the Bible's crazy. That's the end, by the way. But you see God's point there, right? I told you you might not like the ending of that. I've learned to love it over the years, but... God, he tried to get Jonah's anger problem in so many ways. And this one finally worked. He finally found one and God is like, okay, let's push there. This is how I will get my message to him and help him understand. Jonah, for some reason, you got, you got attached to this plant. That's good. We're all happy to see that you're into something. I mean, it may be a little ridiculous, but fine. We're just happy. You're happy. Now let's just say that you are completely legitimate, Jonah, for your love for this plant. I might not get it. But you seem infatuated with it. Great. No problem. Okay. So let's compare that love to something else. Like for instance, thousands and thousands of lost human beings that were made in my image, Jonah, and they're hopelessly lost. That breaks my heart as the creator of the world. When I see that, does that sound fair to you, Jonah? I know the plant was awesome, but what about the human beings down there? The lost sheep. They don't even know their right hand from their left, Jonah. They're a mess. I'm trying to save them. So, dear reader, you're right. It doesn't even say if Jonah finally got the message or not because, as I've said from the beginning of this podcast, that was never the point of the story. 
This is you. This is me. This is looking in the mirror. You are so wrapped up in your little life problems and you don't stop. You're going to miss the whole point of this life. Jonah's behavior and temperament are embarrassing at points of this story, obviously. But guess what? So are yours. So are mine. And God doesn't want to smash us and kill us. He wants to forgive us and save us. Jonah, Tyler, don't you see that? You are part of God's family, but that doesn't excuse your behavior. You are just as lost and just as hypocritical and broken as these Ninevites. Love your enemies, guys. They don't deserve it, and neither do you. Bless those who curse you. You are not the star of the show. I want you to see it upside down. Yes, there is real pain, betrayal, and terrible stories in our time on this planet, but that stops at the cross. Jesus wants to deconstruct that thought of how to deal with your enemies. Don't build up emotional walls and hide or run away and ignore your problems. See that person in your life the way Jesus sees them. Don't reduce their whole walk of life into the one time they did something that really hurt you. Be better. Be bigger. Hell, you might be the person in someone else's story of how they got hurt by you and they never forgave you. And why should they? I know I have been that in someone else's life and it hurts, man. It hurts. But look at it differently, not as an enemy, as a being that was made in God's image. We have all done terrible things and we can't get them back. That's the point of the cross. The playing field has been leveled at Calgary. The slate is clean. This isn't about God and Nineveh. It's about God and his image bearers. Some are toxic, but you were toxic too. You might be toxic right now. And God still wants to come near you. This is the gift of the enemy. Your friends, they'll look past your flaws and they'll love you anyway. Your wife will look past your terrible flaws and just love you anyway. Your enemy puts your flaws on display. So this allows you to come to terms with them. Does it sting sometimes? Yeah, but use it. Use that common brokenness. I think this is God saying, don't you see Jonah? Don't you see Tyler? Shouldn't I care for these people? I want you to have a deeper understanding and experience. And yes, the Ninevites are a train wreck, but guess what? So are you. And I still want you all in paradise with me. Laughing and joking and feasting and partying with me. I want you there with me rejoicing forever. I'm not up here with my arms crossed looking for a mistake to hammer you over the head with it. My arms are wide open and I am waiting and I'm ready when you are. I'm ready when you are. I'm ready when you are. I am Tyler Parker and Sunday School is out. Out. out.